0: Thanks, thanks, Jeremiah. Appreciate that. And just so you know, my my mission fields seem to be battling each other—the gym and the bagel shop. It's really hard; <laughs> I can't can't get a, get ahead. But uh, we're going to be in John eighteen today, just if for for your planning purposes. But. It's good to be back. You know, we've been in July. It'll have been nine years since we left. I mean, we've been back to visit, but since we left to go to Virginia, and it was great. It's just been great to come back. You know, we saw Kelly Helmentoller yesterday, who was Andriana's preschool teacher of all things. Andriana, who was up here uh, on the worship team, and uh, Tracy told the story yesterday that Andre came back from first day of preschool and said, "I have a Disney princess as my teacher." Um, so it was really just really cool to see them. Um, you know, and, and, and just being here and watching the growth of Crosspoint Coast. Uh, I'm not even talking about facilities because, you know, the first sermon I preached at Coast was from the book of James in Jeremiah's living room. The first sermon I preached in, at Crosspoint Coast, I may have been in sock feet, I'm not sure. but And then, you know, the Holiday Inn, the school, all these, watching the facilities. But the facilities is one thing, but as I talked to people yesterday, I could see the growth in just the community and the love for the church. You know, we, we don't have as many people in this world that love the church. And it's good to see that you guys love the church. You, you understand ecclesiology. You love the body of Christ. So I was encouraged by that. I continue to be encouraged by this congregation. So with that, let's, let's get into our message today. So I'm going to start with a quote. You might recognize it. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal and independent, that from that equal creation they derive rights inherent and inalienable, among which are the provision of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now these are the words from a rough draft of the United States Declaration of Independence penned by Thomas Jefferson, and just to get your guard down, this isn't a political sermon, so bear with me. Now, after being edited by a committee of five, and then finally by the Second Continental Congress, the final version that ended up part of our U.S. Declaration of Independence on July 4, 1776, in a form that many of you will recognize reads, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, there's nothing legally binding about this statement. But the concept of our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is built into the fiber and fabric of America and Americans. Now, to that end, Americans spend an inordinate amount of time and effort on the third of these stated unalienable rights, the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness is certainly not unique to America or Americans. It's not that's not our ambition. We didn't create it. We just thought it was important enough to write down in our founding documents. Now, I don't think any of us would disagree with the fact that we like the experience of happiness in our lives. The euphoria we feel when something or someone in our lives makes us happy is undeniable. Happiness can indeed be a good thing. Now, of course, there are you nutcases out there who get that same euphoria from being unhappy and dissatisfied, I guess, if you boil it down, that's your version of happiness, more power to you although we certainly have the right to happiness and the right to pursue happiness, it is something that often eludes us. If we do somehow find happiness, it it usually is temporary and often escapes us. Can you resonate with what I'm saying? There's a reason for that, though. Our happiness, at least as I've defined it, is often dependent on what happens, dependent on what happens to us, Depends on what happens to those around us. It depends on what happens to the ones we love and care about. We get a new vehicle, and it makes us happy. Then someone rams into it and totals it, and our happiness vanishes in an instant. You know, my brother really likes his trucks and, and likes, also likes upgrading them every few years. And I still remember he visited me in Virginia in his new truck. And we were literally driving down there and he was saying, you know, I finally might keep this one. I really like this truck. I'm telling you, within two minutes, someone rammed into the back of this truck Dodge Ram. And he found out he had frame damage, so no sooner did that happen than he said, I don't want this truck anymore. He was unsatisfied with it. Now, I somehow doubted he was going to remain satisfied with it anyway, but long that's another story. Now, <laughs> look, we're happy when we've been eating healthy and exercising, but then we get a devastating diagnosis that our life is in danger, but something in our body is, is harmed, and it's hard to maintain happiness in that situation. We're we're happy when we get get a financial plan in order. As someone who struggled with financial plans all my life, when you get a financial plan in order and then your boss comes in and says, you won't be working here next week. Financial plan is out the window. Happiness again escapes us. Now, look, we're happy when we have our loved ones around us and then we lose a loved one and our happiness again escapes us. You see, happiness often has much, as much to do with our circumstances and what's happening at a given time. It may, mostly has to do with that. The pursuit of happiness in itself isn't a bad thing, but when it becomes an ultimate thing and the object of our hope, it can leave us empty, lacking contentment, and sometimes downright depressed. Now, the last year is certainly a year we could label as the happiness challenge, wouldn't you say? It's been filled with many things that have put happiness to the test. Now look, I'd love to tell you that I'm here speaking as an expert on how you can be happy and, and that I haven't invested a lot of my own personal capital in the pursuit of happiness, but that's not the case. I've, I've spent a lot of emotional energy, time, and money in the pursuit of happiness in my 50 years on this earth. I know I don't look that old, but... And, and even during my 20 years as a Christian, look, early in my walk with Christ, I knew that God had called me to pastoral ministry. To the point where I came home one day and said, we're, we're moving to California and selling everything. So I'm going to Bible college. And she's like, Who, you're going to California. You know, it's like, I was, but, but look, for years I suppressed this calling and pursued worldly pleasures and happiness. Now, thankfully, God was patient and didn't give up on me. The calling and ministry aspirations he had given me didn't subside. And eventually, I answered the call to move to Florida to be trained for ministry. But look, the training package didn't come in the form I wanted, uh, although I would get formal training as part of this package. The rest was in the form of severe depression, financial loss, and a lot of tears in ripping family away from their loved ones in Virginia. I felt at times during that season that God had forsaken me, but, but deep down I was pursuing the God of my own personal happiness. Then, a few years into our journey, I met a guy named Jeremiah. I think you might know him, gray beard, super long sermons. You know him? Then all my problems suddenly disappeared. I think you know that's not true, especially if you know Jeremiah. Just kidding. I was so excited to be part of the journey of the planting of this church that I I stand with this body and some of the people that you know and love. Matt and Tracy Hardy, John and Naomi Menton, Tim and Cassie Garner, all their families, and a number of others. And look, my wife, kids, and I lived in Melbourne, so Jeremiah and I had discussed that Coast would send us down to Palm Bay, West Melbourne, in a few years after Coast got off the ground here in Vieira. Now, that is until we sensed a strong calling to go to the place where God had done his mirac- miraculous work of salvation in both Tracy and I, Williamsburg, Virginia. Now, what came with that move was early ministry failure, more depression, and lots of questioning of God along the journey. It again seemed like God had forsaken me at times there, but he obviously had not. He was continuing to do a work in me and crushing the idol of happiness that I I had constructed in my life. Look, like you, I want to be happy and experience the euphoria that comes with it. But if the pursuit of happiness... And the thing we believe will make us happy are the main goals of our existence, we will end up off course. The real thing we should be pursuing is joy and the things that lead to joy. And look, the reality is that although my early journey to follow God's calling and even noble aspirations he had given me, I was still looking for happiness and not finding my ultimate joy in him. There's a seemingly subtle but big, huge difference between happiness and joy. Today's text will help us to understand this and put us on the right course toward pursuing the joy that only Jesus can give, an and overcoming joy, a joy that can even overcome the darkest days we experience. Look, as the cross approached quickly for Jesus in our text, he, he taught his disciples a principle that would help them to understand joy principle that would enlighten them on the power that brings joy and show them how their position in him leads to ultimate joy. And look, this lesson is for these disciples too. And I, you might ask, why not preach a message on the cost of discipleship or, or on missions, you know, Matthew 28, you know, why not go there on a mission, Global Missions Weekend? I had prepared a message from Luke 14 with the famous verse, any of you who does not forsake everything he has cannot be my disciple. But as I prepared and I reached out to Jeremiah and said, I think I want to call an audible and change course here. I feel like I want, in a tough year for for missionaries, in a tough year for those on mission in Brevard County, I wanted to preach a message on joy because I believe when we understand where our joy comes from and find our joy in Christ, those things are going to pour out of it discipleship will pour out of the joy in the Lord. Mission will pour out of the joy. You will be thankful you'll be responding to the joy that Jesus has put in you. So let's pray one more time before we get into our text. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus today, just a glimpse of his glory today in the word. But we pray that you would give ears to hear today. Awaken those who do not have spiritual ears to hear that they might meet Jesus today. We pray in his name, amen. So, let's talk. start with a principle to understand joy. And by the way, I, I war against alliteration, but I ended up there, so bear with me. Principle to understand joy. Verse 16 of John 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. This is Jesus speaking. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, throughout the upper room discourse in John 14 to 17, the final time that Jesus had spent with his disciples before going to the cross, he provided details about the events that would take place in the near future. Jesus gives his disciples another such statement at the beginning of our passage today. Now, we're going to see that Jesus' statement leaves his disciples wondering exactly what is he saying. Some scholars believe he's talking about going to heaven and then showing himself in power and glory at Pentecost. Some believe he's saying they they won't see him again until he comes at the end of the age in glory. Now, given what we know about the future events in John and the other gospels, it's more likely that Jesus is talking about his coming death, burial, and resurrection. Now, look, scholars don't completely agree on this, so it shouldn't surprise us that the disciples may have been a bit confused on it as well. Now, Now, think about it, though. Jesus is having this intimate conversation with his disciples in the upper room. But in less than 24 hours, he will be completely unavailable to them because he will be dead. They wouldn't even be able to see his dead body because it was hidden in a tomb. They had left everything to follow Jesus for three years, hanging on his every word, and he would be gone. But that wouldn't be the end because the resurrection would come just three days later, and they would see him again. Still, they debate and discuss what he means. Do you think it's funny? They're debating and discussing what he means, and he's standing right there with them I think there's a lesson here for us, a little aside. You you and I spend too much time, or maybe you don't, I do, debating and discussing things with one another and not enough time seeking the face of God and the direct wisdom he has offered us in his word. He's revealed a lot to us in here. So let's continue looking at, at what his word says here to see what his disciples say and how Jesus uses it as a teachable moment. We're gonna go verse 17 to 20. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him so he said to them, is this what you're you're asking yourselves what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus said they would see him in a little while. The disciples want to know, what, what, do, you, what do you mean by a little while? It's certainly a valid question. You know, a little while can be a relative term, I think we know. I've seen friends from my youth battling cancer and multiple sclerosis and, and countless other things for years try telling them that 5 10 15 20 years is a little while look like when you're battle, battling serious illness that little while seems like an eternity for 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 those of you who with kids you're on a long trip you know when you say a little while the interpretation can be different you say we'll be there in a when will we be there they say you will say we'll be there in a little while 10 seconds later it's like are we there yet that little while is a different definition. They, they, they meant You meant an hour and they meant a minute. Look, the phrase little while is often used in Scripture to describe a period you and I will consider a long while. When the Apostle Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, he's talking about the remainder of the audience's life. They would face persecution and trials That would test the genuineness of their faith for the rest of their lives as followers of Christ. But in the case of our text today, however, Jesus appears to be referring to the next few days when he will be put to death and resurrected. And then in verse 20, Jesus gets the attention of his disciples in teaching this, this principle to understand joy. Anytime Jesus begins a statement with truly, truly, he's saying, listen up, pay attention, this is important. The other stuff was important too, But this is really important. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Look, Jesus' death would be a source of great sorrow for his disciples. Jesus was their friend, and more importantly, he was their Lord and their spiritual father. When Jesus left them, they would be torn apart with lamentation. They would cry and wonder about the future, but at the same time, we see there are many of the people around would rejoice. The religious leaders who had been plotting his death for a long time, they would, they, they, they would, it was would seen they were about to get their way, Well, didn't it? They would rejoice, at least for a time, that their nemesis, the one who threatened their authority, their power, and their security, would be no more. But it wouldn't last, would it? The disciples' sorrow would turn to joy, and the victory of the religious leaders would be short-lived. Jesus would further bring this point home by using the example of childbirth. Verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now, some of you know that we've been around a long time, know the story of the birth of our first daughter, Mackenzie, who's not with us today, who's finishing up her, her last semester at Virginia Tech. Now, when Tracy was in labor with Mackenzie, she was in such pain and anguish because she was told it was too late for the epidural. Now, I know some of you ladies did it without the epidural, but that wasn't Tracy's plan, so that, that's just not what we are gonna do. So, Even so, I still remember the joy When Mackenzie was born, Tracy just cried out, It's a baby! It's like, yes it is. Now look, not it's a girl, it's a baby. All the pain and sorrow she felt in delivering Mackenzie was suddenly, at least for a moment, forgotten because the joy she felt in delivering our daughter into our family and into the world, it was gone for a moment. Now if you know the story, you know that I was a bit of an accomplice in withholding the epidural. The midwife and I decided together that it was too late in the process. But let me tell you, after reading this text today, I feel so much more justified in that decision because I know I actually helped magnify her joy in that moment. You're welcome. I'm going to pay for that part of the story. So, so Jesus further emphasizes this principle of joy when he says, So also you have, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Look, they could hold on to this principle. The object of their pain presently would produce great joy eventually. The object of their pain presently would produce great joy eventually. J- just like the, the labor pain Produce great joy in the ultimate gift of a life. His pain and their pain would also produce great joy. His leaving, his crucifixion, even his death was going to be the cause of great joy through the resurrection. They would see him again and they would truly understand the purpose and plan behind the pain. And this principle is not just for these disciples in the book. Again, this is for these disciples in this room. This disciple speaking No one could take the joy from Jesus' disciples, and no one can snatch the joy from you if you were in Christ. Now let's let's take a look at the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis for an example. Joseph was the favorite son of his father, Jacob, who lived a comfortable life, and he was thrown into a pit by his envious older brothers. Then he was picked up by some merchants passing along, ended up in Egypt where he sold as a slave into the house of a man named Potiphar works his way up in Potiphar's house until suddenly things turn sour when Potiphar's wife accuses him wrongfully of sexual assault. Cast into prison, Joseph languished there day after month after year until God miraculously worked through a series of incredible events to release him from prison and elevate him to the position of prime minister of Egypt. He was put in a place just at the right time to rescue his family during a horrible famine. Now, as his brothers approached him, Imagine you've thrown your brother into the pit thinking he's dead and gone. They approach him thinking the worst is about to happen. Joseph says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, so do not fear. Joseph may not have known it while he was going through the pain, but the pain produced joy for him, for his family, and for countless others. Jesus' disciples were focused on what was right in front of their faces, and they couldn't see the big picture of what Jesus would accomplish when he was glorified. Look, too many times we get focused on what's right in front of us and not on the glorified Christ. What's right in front of us does not always bring us happiness, but focusing on the glorified Christ will bring us unexplainable joy. God is interested in your transformation. He's interested in my transformation as he produces joy with the very things that might even cause us pain. But God doesn't leave you alone to find joy. It's not like just, all right, go out, run in the field and find joy. He also gives us the power that brings that joy as we're gonna see in verses 23 to 27. Verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of my of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say, that, say to you that. I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and I have believed that I came from God. But God gives us the power source for the joy. The power to transform that which produces sorrow into that which produces joy is the power of prayer. The power to transform that which produces sorrow into that which produces joy is the power of prayer. Jesus says, until you, till now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy may be full. But notice Jesus says we must ask in his name, but what does that look like? We first must ask in the authority of his name. Look, I worked for my dad as a construction laborer in Connecticut summers during college. Now, if one of the more seasoned laborers, you know, these guys did this for a living, came up to me and says, what is this punk 19-year-old doing out here? You know, pretty boy doing out here for, I know. You know doing out here on the crew. I would, ask, I would say, my father put me to work here for the summer. And they'd say, who is your father? And I would say, Tracy Dumphy." Just happens to have the same name, first name as my wife. But it's even weirder than that. I have the first name as her father too. It's just really a weird setup. But anyway, so, so suddenly this construction crew knew that I was there on good authority. I was on the, there on the authority of my father. But let me tell you this. It was not all about being there on the authority of my father because if I was just some lazy college kid getting paid 16 bucks an hour to sit on my shovel, it would not sit well with them. I also needed to conform To the name of my father, not just the authority, but conform to the name of my father. My father was a hard worker and had high expectations for his workers. If anything, the expectations were much higher for me. And I had to represent him as one of the hardest workers in that crew to represent the name of my father well. Now, when we ask in the name of Jesus, we must do so not only in his authority, but in conformity to his nature. Oftentimes we ask for things that are out of harmony with the nature of God and we wonder why our prayers aren't answered. But the real secret to prevailing prayer is not really a secret at all. If we're in the word constantly, studying the life of Christ specifically, the things that we pray for won't be more in the conformity with his character. Have you ever considered the fact that maybe you lack joy because you're looking for the wrong things to give you joy and asking for the wrong things in your prayer life. So this isn't an indictment. It's a question to correct our course. It's a question to say, what am I asking for in prayer? Am I, am I asking in the authority of, of the name of the Father? Am I in conformity with his nature? Jesus says, and you will receive that your joy may be full. And So I want you to ask yourself an honest question right now. Don't, don't lie to yourself, and if you do, call yourself out immediately on it. You know you. Am I tapping into the power source that God has given me? Look, if you ask, if you lack joy, ask yourself how much time you're spending scrolling, looking at bad news and divisive things out that are out there. Look, I think some of us actually get a high, knowingly or unknowingly, thinking about all the wrongs in society. It, it's sort of this adrenaline high. This is terrible. But we should be getting our high from what we've been given in Christ instead. Look, I'll tell you right now. I scroll. The more I scroll news feeds, the more depressed I get. And some days I scroll a lot. And sometimes I don't just get depressed. I get angry. I'm not telling you there aren't real things to get depressed and angry about. They're out there. What I'm telling you is that I can almost guarantee that if you spend time in the Word, focused on Christ, and let that be, and, and, and let that lead you to prayer in His name you will find great power that will bring you joy. If you do that, you will realize and recognize that God has put you in a position that leads to joy. So verses 28 to 33, we're gonna see a position that leads to ultimate joy. Verse 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. I still remember after getting my first job when I got out of school, got a master's in mechanical engineering from West Virginia University. I got my first job, but it was long before I finished my thesis. It was like, cool, I got a job. Oh, nuts, I got to finish this huge document. And I pulled many an all-nighter to do it. When I finished, I headed to Detroit to meet Tracy, who was already there. And other than one summer engineering internship. This was my first real engineering job and I was no longer in the office with this bunch of like-minded graduate students, sounding board guys, didn't have access to my research advisor or other professors. These folks were like my teachers, my mentors. Now I was in the real world, expected to perform without a net. What I discovered though is I still had the ability to talk to these people, get their insights and advice and on top of that I had a whole huge new network of people who were willing to help me and grow and for these disciples, Seminary was over. Jesus was leaving the world and going to the Father, but the good news is he would not leave them alone. Now remember when he said it would be be better for them that he goes to the Father. They would have access to the Father through him, and he would send the Holy Spirit to guide them in their daily walk. Now they had access to the entire Trinity. The disciples seem to get it now. They say, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that all, you know all things and do not need to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now I think Jesus, I don't know, maybe it may have been a little sarcastic when he says, do you now believe? Like the unrecorded follow-up question may have been, where have you been for the last three years, guys? I've, I've been telling you for three years I had to die. Look, Jesus knew their newfound faith and belief would be short-lived as evidenced by his next statement in verse 32 though. Behold, The hour is coming, indeed has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus predicted what would actually happen when the disciples would would run off and hide after his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. They would indeed flee from his side and be scattered. And and Jesus closes with a word of warning and a word of encouragement in verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that you may that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Look, you and I can lay claim to the most awesome position. Jesus says, I have overcome, and you are in me, so if you, even if you do scatter, even if you do stumble, even if you do fail, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I lived a life in which the world did not seduce me. Satan didn't conquer me, and sin never tainted me. That's what Jesus says. I have overcome, and you are in me, therefore you have overcome as well. Time and time again in the Old Testament, God had given victory to the people before the battle had even begun. Before the battle was fought, he had given Joshua victory over Jericho. Before he faced the massive giant Goliath, God had given this small shepherd boy victory over him. With one stone planted squarely in the forehead of Goliath, David was victorious over a seemingly unbeatable giant. So too, our champion, the son of David, Jesus, took on an opponent even greater than Goliath. My sin and failure, your sin and failure, and he beat them. And we just get to enjoy the victory. The race of the Christian life is the only race in the world that begins at the finish line. Jesus has overcome the world, and for that reason, so have you if you are his disciple. Look, we don't fight for victory, we fight from a position of victory. The battle is already won, Jesus has already overcome. We don't have to fight for the victory, we fight from a position of victory, a position in Christ. The battle's won look, Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. And I know we like to think that we face mass persecution in this country, and I do think a greater level is coming, but I want you to think about some of our brothers and sisters around the world. Some of the people who are with us today from around the world have faced tremendous trials. and have done so while thousands of miles away from family, friends, and, and their support network of the church that, that is partnered with them. So Some of our Christian brothers have been forced to worship in secret for their faith. Some have been imprisoned for their faith. Some have had family members taken away or even killed for that faith. Look, One example is that only a few days after celebrating this past Christmas together with their church, five of our Christian brothers in northeast Nigeria were slaughtered for their faith in Christ by Islamic terrorists. They were named and executed one by one as a warning to other Christians in the region. So how did they get through it? How did they enter glory in this way? I believe it's because they understood the difference between happiness and joy. They tapped into the power source behind their joy. They knew Jesus had overcome the world and they too would overcome. It may not be glamorous, but they would overcome. They knew nothing but following Jesus until the very end would bring ultimate joy even if that joy for them was on the other side of eternity. Look, tribulation will come and has indeed come, but we can find joy and peace by looking to Christ and resting in him. Christian, let me ask you this question today. Have you tapped into the power of God's word and prayer to bring you joy? Or are you glued to the gloom and doom that's right in front of your face each day? Have you claimed the victory that's already yours and begun to rest in that victory? You're at the finish line of that race. Doesn't mean you don't have to walk on this earth, but you've at the finish. You have, you've already been victorious. These questions in this message are not, not just for missionaries that are here today and church planters. This is for everyone in this room whom God has called to himself in faith. God has a mission for each of us to appoint our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our communities to Christ. If we're so focused on all that's wrong with the world and on pursuing our own happiness in this life, we will miss this urgent calling God has placed upon us and put in front of us. Focusing on our own comfort and, and, and on the discomfort we're experiencing is a distraction from God's mission. I'm not saying it's not real, but focusing on it. Your heart, your heart can't break for those apart from saving faith if it's constantly focused inwardly, can it? Look, this, this may be why our joy is constantly escaping and eluding us. God, God wants to cause a great spiritual awakening in Brevard County, in the rest of Florida, Virginia, in Mongolia, and even in Cambodia, where I originally thought you were coming from. God wants his mission accomplished. He wants to, the glory of God will happen as the mission continues through us. Look, begins right here right in these seats is where it begins as you seek to experience the joy of christ letting it overflow into the relationships you already have in your sphere of influence it's not a special line item on on the church bulletin if we had one it's not a line item it's life life on mission out of overflowing joy but look i want to also address my unbelieving friends who might be watching or in here for a moment like, like my heart is heavy for you today because I don't know how you endure the challenges of this life without the power of the gospel and the hope of the gospel. I can tell you this you will never find true and lasting joy apart from Jesus Christ. You may find times of happiness and euphoria where you're temporarily satisfied, but joy will elude you until you meet Jesus in a saving relationship. But here's the good news there's no battle for you to fight. Jesus has already claimed victory on your behalf through his life, death, and resurrection. He lived a perfect life you couldn't live. He died a death you deserved, and he rose from death to make a way to God. God is calling you to himself. If you hear my voice, God is calling you to himself at this very moment. But you need not fight a battle, but you must take a step of faith, repent, and believe. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you must turn from your sin and turn to Jesus to claim that victory that is already yours. I pray that you would do that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you are sovereign. Lord, we thank you that you have called men and women to yourself in saving faith. I pray that you would call more to yourself today pray that you would use us to proclaim the saving message of the gospel and Lord help us to experience the overwhelming and overcoming joy that only you can provide we love you, we praise you in the mighty name of Jesus Amen